Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly, and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So I'm thrilled about the guest that we have today, thrilled because he's another Spaniard, another Spaniard here in the U.S., and it's amazing, his story, remarkable, super inspiring. You know, coming from a foreign country is not easy, especially coming from Spain. It's a different culture. It's a different way of seeing things. It's a different way of asking for help, too, and also a different way in which you raise money. So adjusting to, you know, what's going on in this market is not easy, and this founder has done it, you know, has built and scaled his company. He's on his way to doing potentially an IPO very soon. And I think that we're going to learn, you know, a thing or two about uh, perseverance, a bit about going at it and uh, not giving up, regardless of the circumstances in front of you. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Alfonso de la Nuez. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Alejandro. Happy to be here. It's hard to build a, a startup. It's harder to do it internationally. And it's harder to do it uh, bootstrapping. So, yeah, it, it's been a, a long, tough ride. A hundred percent. I will talk about the bootstrapping because I'm sure that many of our listeners are really going to enjoy, you know, how you did it. But I guess, you know, let's do a, a little bit of a walk through memory lane. Uh, you were born and raised in Madrid. So how was life, you know, growing up in Madrid? Yeah, so small correction. I actually was raised in Madrid, but I was born in Milan. Uh, my, my parents yeah. lived in Milan, Italy for, for 14 years, so I just, it was just a coincidence. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm con I consider myself from Madrid. I, I was raised there, and I loved the city. It was great. I had, a, I had a great experience. I think Madrid is a fun city. Uh, played a lot of basketball and a lot of sports when I was a kid, and you know, I, I just never thought that it would end up uh, living uh, you know, half of my life in, in California. But uh, but I love Madrid and I go visit, uh, you know, four times a year or so. And obviously playing basketball is what uh, helped you to land in the U.S. So how, how was that? Uh, how was that journey like? My parents uh, approached me, I think, when I was 15, 16. And, you know, you need to grow up a little bit. You need to mature and you need to leave us alone for a little bit. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, you should learn English. So we're going to send you you know, for one year foreign exchange student program to the U.S. and, uh, you know, come back and hopefully you'll be a nicer guy. Uh, and with that, uh, they uh, they found me a place in California. I had asked for, I mean, I was scared to death. I couldn't speak English, you know, and 
So um, leaving my friends and my family was was pretty scary. But it, you know, the condition for me was uh, if you can find me a place or a high school that has a basketball program because I really wanted to continue playing. I played for Real Madrid, you know, minor league uh, teams when I was uh, 15, and so they found me a really good program with a high school coach that is today to this date like my uncle. Uh, his name is Coach uh, Schaefer. Um, and he helped me, you know, go through that experience. And I liked it so much that I ended up coming back for my senior year in high school. And then that led to a, a full scholarship uh, at San Jose State, where I played basketball for four years and studied business administration. So obviously, I mean, I guess when you come here and you study here, I mean, I, and it happened to me, it's like you're already exposed to the to the incredible culture, you know, that uh, that is, you know, the, the U.S. and and also their 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 drive towards business, right? like the American dream. You know, in your case, you also studied business in 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 college. So why why going back to Spain? I had my family and my friends there. I asked myself that question a lot because I actually graduated in 1996, and you remember that's when Yahoo and Amazon and all of these you know brands in the internet dot com bubble uh, or or that that's when all these companies took off and and it was an an amazing time so i went to college in the heart of silicon valley you know i bought a netscape navigator you know i don't remember if you i don't know if you remember they had the uh you know the the boxes uh, at the electronics store and it was 1993 i think it was you know so everybody here was was into the internet uh, some some way or another but you know, family and friends and, you know, how we are in Spain, you know, you, you're drawn to going back to your family and your friends and your, and, and I just never thought that would end up, uh, you know, working in technology or the internet would become so big. So I just wanted to go back and, and enjoy my home country. So then tell us about being there because you, you know, continue in the, even though, you know, it was not the tech environment that you were experiencing here in, in the Valley in the nineties, you know, you still experience, you know, working for Dell and, and other companies that were a little bit more, you know, U.S. or 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 with the American, you know, type of approach. But, but I mean, at one point you decide that it makes sense to really, you know, uh, pack things in and come back here. But, but I guess you know, like before doing that, you actually started your first company. I guess say working at Dell and all of that gave you kind of like the mindset and the approach. And 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 that was in 2001 when you know you meet your co-founders and. And something, you know, sparked, you know, that, that, that first company coming to life. So tell us about that journey and how it got incubated and how, you know, it started. Yeah. So as soon as I arrived from Spain, as soon as I, as soon as I uh, left the Valley and went back to Spain, I started working in technology, Dell Computers, Icon Media Lab, which was a pioneering consulting company to design and develop websites for, you know, those, those were the first websites of, of Spanish corporations back in the, in the late 90s. And what I noticed to your to your point about why starting the company and the, fir the first company in 2001, what I noticed is that all these companies were building websites and investing a lot of money and time. And, you know, it was like a fever. You know, it was, everybody wanted to have a website, but nobody really cared about the end user, the person, the, 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 the human behind uh, the website that was going to use the website for very specific things, always with a task or an objective. You know, and you just want to go in and get out. You know, um, nobody was paying attention to that. So uh, I started researching. I, I got very frustrated as a project manager. I got very frustrated, you know, on how bad and how poor the the website's usability was, and the user experience was just terrible. 
So I started researching and got together with my two co-founders, uh, you know, in 2001 to provide a, a, a service of testing websites. It was called usability testing. Uh, obviously, it's still done today, but back then it was very special and very like innovative and different, especially in Spain. So you know, we were kind of crazy and young, and we didn't really know uh, anything about you know starting a business, but we were very passionate about this. And I think that drive helped us be fairly successful with that consulting model, helping companies and mostly the enterprises in Spain. The same guys that I was working for in the in the consulting business before in the consultancy before um, the, the before our startup, and we were telling them, look. You know, you're designing and you're developing and you're spending all this time in this effort. But you know, we, what if you could test it before you launch it and compare, you know, and see if you're if it's actually meeting the the, the needs and the desire and the experience of your users, you know, the expectations uh, of your users. And with that um, value proposition, we went to to market. Uh, it was called Experience Consulting, and uh, it was our first um, you know experience as entrepreneurs. Uh, we were able to grow it to about 40 people in Madrid and Barcelona. It was fun. We made a living out of it, which is, you know, pretty successful, right? Because most yeah. startups fail. But that's how we we got going as as entrepreneurs uh, in 2001. And I'm sure it was not easy because, you know, in Spain, you know, this uh, culture that that we have there is that, you know, when you're finished with university, you need to become a lawyer or a banker or a consultant. Uh, and back then, you know, especially in 2001, you know, starting your own company was not as sexy as it is today. You know, right now everyone wants to, you know, uh, jump into the train of, of of building a startup. But back then, you know, it was it was really not like that. So, I mean, how was that for you too? You know, like for choosing a different route. I remember. I will never forget my brothers. I have two other brothers, uh, and the one that has been very successful as a CEO uh, for for a long time now. He told me, "Are you a nutcase? Another crazy dude that's going to do a dot? Is going to launch another dot com?" He literally said that at a family dinner uh, when I when I you know when I told him the news that I was leaving my nice high paying consulting job for launching our startup. But on the other side, I had my parents um, that were very supportive, and so they said, "Look, I think this is it's going to be very good for you. We'll support you." And basically, they said, "You know." We'll give you some money for the first six months, and then and you're and then you're on your own, basically. Yeah. Um, and so, I think that I just had it in me, and my my co-founding partner is the same. What happened to me back then, I remember, you know, is that I always was I was always challenging my boss, and I was always challenging the customer, and I was just a pain in the butt. I'll be honest, you know, it's like oh, we could do better, we could do this, oh, we could do that, and everybody was just slowing me down, and I felt. That was very frustrating for me. I think all of many, if not all of the entrepreneurs that listen to this podcast can identify with this. It was just that that drive that really got me going. So I could have had three brothers tell me that I was crazy. I was still going to do it, you know? Yeah, no, I hear you. And and obviously for you guys, once you got started, you know, with this, and as you were saying, you know, you build it to like 40 people, there was a, a, a key moment where... You know, everything, one thing led to the next, and it ended up becoming more like a SaaS type of operation where you, what you guys were embarking on. So so how did that happen? As we scaled and scaled, obviously, you know, 40 people is not that much. But, you know, as we grew and uh, we were running tests every day in a physical lab, we, had, we ended up building, I think it was three to four physical labs in Madrid. 
and another three in Barcelona. And sometimes we had to rent space. So as we were growing, we were, we would spend the day at the lab and we were interviewing people and testing, right? The way you do usability testing is you have a computer and you have a, a user that you invite somebody that is that fits the target profile of our customer. And then in the observation room, we, we tend to ask the customer to come and observe to see what the reaction is from the users, right? It, it was it was a fun <laughs> it was a fun type of thing, fun fun type of service, and very valuable, by the way. Uh, however, extremely costly time-consuming, just burning, you know, it, you know, because we could have hired, but then we would obviously not be profitable. So we would do this ourselves, uh, you know, uh, as much as we could. And I think that after a few years and all this, uh, all these tests, we were just tired and we felt like the software and the internet should be able to handle a large portion of the whole process here, whether it was to create the study, uh, whether it was to collect the data, and the, and the videos, whether it was to to transcript the the conversation with the user, a lot of those things. I mean, if you look at today, it, it doesn't make any sense to do it this way. And so that's what drove or what uh, motivated us to to start building an MVP. It was an internal product originally, something that we were going to offer consulting using our own product, so we could reduce the hours. Uh, but I mean, we're talking 2007, so. Back then, the term SaaS was very, very new. And so initially, what happened was actually this. We, we were uh, delivering the service through with our product. And then we actually decided to spend money on a conference, uh, a, a conference, one of these trade, trade shows, to come in and see if we could actually sell this product to American companies. And... Actually, it turned out that uh, they were they, they liked it. They liked the idea of doing remote testing because that's what we would do with the software is we would do it remotely. And so it enabled international testing. It enabled faster testing. The, the concept of Agile started to happen, you know, a little later uh, down the road. But anyway, the point is that um, some customers here felt like it was a, a good idea. And so we ended up closing a couple of deals with eBay. And then the guy moved to Google. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves with a few customers. These were, again, services. Okay, We were providing the service. But then at one point, I think it was 2008, 2009, we had kind of both companies at the same time. We had user Zoom and we had the experience consulting, the, the consulting uh, business with the labs. And at some point right there, Google you know, said, hey, you guys are great. You do great research. You do provide great service. But we would love to have the keys to the car and drive it ourselves, meaning give me a login and password, put it all in the cloud. And provide a software a software as a service model, and we were like, bingo! Uh, how much is that going to cost, and how much time how much time is it going to take? And what, what, we didn't know anything about SaaS, so I think that was an amazing period of time. First, incredibly difficult. I ended up moving here to provide, you know, the service and to continue selling the SaaS model to the American companies here in the Valley, where where uh, the the founders and the R and D team stayed in Barcelona. That was really difficult, very very difficult back then, not as it is today. Yeah. And 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 ultimately, uh, we decided that uh, we had to focus on one business only. We kept them all to get, uh, overlapping for about two to three years. That was also very difficult to do. And then we bootstrapped a little bit. We, we raised a little bit of money, uh, you know, with the idea of, uh, well, with the condition that I moved permanently, uh, or at least for a, for a while, 
to the U.S. to roll out the business. And uh, that was 2008, 2009 period. And here we are today. Wow. What a journey. And just so that the people that are listening get it, what ended up being the uh, business model of UserZoom? How do you guys make money? Yeah, it's a, it's a 100% annual subscription. Um, you know, you, uh, the subscription includes uh, uh, three things. One is the access to the software so that you can build your studies, launch it, launch them to the target audience. You, that's the second one, finding the target audience. And then the third one is we, you can capture all this data and insights by, on your, by yourself or run the, the analysis yourself, or you can hire us to help you with the analysis. And so all of that is part of a, of a yearly subscription. We work mostly with uh, mid, mid to large enterprises. Yeah, and we dropped we dropped the consulting model completely. Now on the you know really building up the business, I mean you guys, you know were pretty much bootstrapping all the way to twelve million uh, in revenue, which is uh, yep. remarkable. What do you think? What do you think drove that decision of just you know keep keep going bootstrapping? Because on bootstrapping, the problem too is that any mistake that you make could be lethal. So I'm sure that you yes. had a bunch of near death experiences too. I think it's a combination of things. We did have many near-death experiences. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's fun to say it now, uh, yeah. but back then you had a lot of cuts and I still have the scars all over the place. Oh, but there, I think it's a combination of things. One is, even though we didn't have a lot of experience, the experience we did have, the three co-founders, was actually precisely on the market, right? It wasn't an MVP to try to solve a problem that we thought was out there. We knew the problem was there. And one way to do that is to have a consulting business during a period of time that gives you this experience, this domain expertise, and understand and helps you understand there's gaps in the markets, right? So I always say that, you know, to other entrepreneurs that if you go into business, if you go, if you launch your own startup and you potentially, you know, you can you can start doing some consulting work and that, that can help you one, understand the market. And two, finance the the SaaS model, you know, uh, the, the software, the, the launch of the first MVP. And that's what we did, you know. So, we, again, we didn't have a lot of experience as entrepreneurs, but um, but we did have the domain experience. The other thing we did, and I'll take some credit for that, you know, is, uh, you know, moving to the U.S. Because, frankly, we could never have scaled it without this, the U.S. market. And we could never have scaled it without having me in the market. Okay, I mean, we could have hired a country manager. Obviously, that could have gone back to Spain, but it wouldn't have been the same, you know. Uh, so I, I give myself a little credit for that. And then the the third one is my co-founding partner, uh, who's the CTO of the company. I mean, he just built a, he built a product that worked, you know, that took care of business and delivered on what the customer was asking us to do. You know, like I remember having one of the first licenses we sold w- was to PayPal. I think it was like halfway through the year, we sit down with them and it's like, hey, how are we doing? And we would like to re- we would like to renew, right? We would like you guys to renew. What do we have to do to, to re- for you guys to renew? And they said, yeah, let us think about it and we'll, we'll send you some comments and feedback. And we, you know, we were doing that with pretty much every single customer because that was kind of our market research and our, our modus operandi is we would be delivering features and optimizing the software based on what the customer was telling us, right? Mm-hmm. And so they sent us a list of 80 requests, eight zero, <laughs> wow. you know, and, and I remember thinking, how, how in the hell are we going to take care of this? 
So back to the to the to my point about my co-founding partner getting the the R and D together and just delivering. You know, we delivered seventy nine of the eighty on the list, and they ended up renewing because uh, we were building a good product that was delivering value. You know, those were yeah. the, I think the three things the three things that I think allowed us to bootstrap and 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 be fairly successful. So then at what point do you realize that it makes sense to raise money? Because obviously the approach that you took for raising money is not the typical one that uh, you would, you know, say that a startup has, you know, which is the angel VC and then, you know, maybe like growth VC and then P and then, you know, either IPO or, or prior exit. I mean, you went, you went straight for the PE. Well, so the bootstrap was a family office in Barcelona and uh, a few of the family friends fools. and then we we also got some government grant and a bank loan. So a mix of all that, you know, about a million and a half to two million dollars to go all the way to twelve million and to do it here in the valley. That's that's key, right? Because it's not the same. I mean, the cost of living here is, as you know, uh really, really high. If I if I went back and I could change a few things that you know how we did it, I would have raised maybe another round of two to three million. You know, maybe uh, uh, around 2011, 2012, as we started seeing some traction. Uh, that's what I would do, and I would recommend others. We didn't because we didn't think it was a big market. So the VCs here, you know, we're always looking for large market opportunities, and we kept saying, ah, we don't think this is going to be a big market. You know, we'll be we'll be very happy to be a 10 million dollar company, 15 million dollar company. Uh, you know. Um, so that's why we didn't race. And basically, since we didn't have any money, we just operated and worked, uh, you know, with whatever the bank account would allow us to to do uh, from a hiring perspective, marketing, all that stuff. So then, yes, in 2014, you know, we were wrong. The, the market started picking up. It actually became a big market. Um, you know, user experience became a thing and having great design, you know, and, and all those things started becoming uh, 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 almost like a must-have versus a nice-to-have. And then uh, our competitor, our competitor actually, um, uh, not, 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 uh, I have no problem mentioning it. Uh, you know, we all know each other very well. Um, they raised, a you know, competitor is called User Testing. They raised a bunch of money um, back in 2014. Mm. And so, you know, it's because the VCs were paying attention to the market. Yeah. So I had been saying no to all these VCs, no, 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 and they did it. And so, you know, I think it was market validation for us, right? And so I went back to the board in Barcelona and said, "Look, guys, I think we it's time to do it uh, because one, we're going to be left behind, uh, you know, we're going to fall behind in, in the race, and two, the market opportunity is big, and three, I think that by telling a good story here with our numbers, I can probably get some nice offers uh, that will be a win-win for everybody." And so. Sunstone came in uh, with a proposal initially to for a, for a for a minority investment, um, but it was going to fundamentally change the business, as you can as you can understand, Alejandro. Right, so it changes everything when you have an investor here who wants to have a board here, and you know all those all those sort of things. So we went back to them and said, hey, you know, we don't think this is going to be a fit. We'd like to continue on, and they came back and said, look, we we will be happy to provide, you know, liquidity. Uh, for you guys, so that and for the investors, and uh, you guys can continue on and 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 you know uh, build a great company here. And so they made an, uh, a new offer, a thirty-four million dollar check that uh, allowed us to do that, and it was a good win-win for everybody: the initial investors, again, family office and and business angels, 
the three co-founders who had gone through hell and back, right, yeah. uh, experience for many years. Um, and then, of course, to do what we're doing today, which is about six years later, the business now is worth 10 times, right? Yeah. So um, so that's what happened. That's amazing. So, so then tell us about, like, because obviously this is not the typical, right? So it's a partial partial exit, as they would say. But, you know, you're still sure. around. You just get the liquidity and some chips of the table. I guess um, a few things here. How do you think the, the dynamics, you know, probably have changed? So I guess, you know, probably for you guys, the risk is different because now, you know, you've taken some chips off the table. It's not like you're like, like your life is like do or die kind of thing. You know, it's a little bit different. No, like you have more oxygen on a personal level. And then also the other thing is when you have a situation like this, the board changes, you know, like the dynamics probably changed a little bit. So walk us through, you know, some of that, you know, transition that happened for you guys. Well, the first thing I'd like to say is that, you know what, even if you do get some liquidity and you live more comfortably, I'll tell you, in a matter of, I don't know, a month or two, you still have the same hunger. <laughs> At least that's how I am. Yeah. I'm just very competitive. And, you know, yeah. I wanted to play in the NBA. So, you know, I didn't make it to the NBA. And to me, to go public or get a large ex exit would be kind of like going to the NBA. So yeah. I was just very driven to keep going. But anyway, uh, besides that anecdote, things change dramatically. And I think it changes, um, you know, mostly for the better. Um, the first thing we do is start hiring. You, you go from being an entrepreneur, a leader, um, you know, a leader of a startup. And I don't know if I should call that a CEO. I think, I think once you get to a point like you're 30, 40, 50 million, 300 people and more, I think that's when you start to become a CEO. I always say, you know, I, I had to learn to be an entrepreneur. And we all, the three of us had to. But then once you, you go through this, you have to learn to be a CEO. And it's a completely different, uh, uh, you know, role, I think. You know, so the first one was to hire. You got to hire the first, the all-star team that surrounds you. And you got to change your philosophy immediately. You got to say, hey, you're going to hire people that are better than you. And they're going to handle things for you. And you have to get the heck out of the way. Uh, <laughs> because otherwise it's not going to work. That was not easy. That transition was not easy. You always, because as, as an entrepreneur, especially if you've done well, you have that ego and you have this desire to do it yourself, right? Yeah. So it's yeah. not easy to be able to just let go of that baby, so to speak. But that was a huge thing. And both um, both of the, 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 the that stayed, one of them left and ended up, you know, going his own way to do his own business. Um, you know, but the two of us that have stayed, we've just taken a step back and watched, you know, and um, I think it hasn't been easy, but it's worked out for the for the better. Mm -hmm. uh, the fact is that when you're here in the Valley, especially here in the Valley, you have so much talent of people that have done what you what you're doing. You know, maybe maybe they haven't started a business from from Madrid, Barcelona or whatever, but they certainly scaled the business. And so it's really interesting to see how the talent that you hire knows so much more of how to go from let's say 30 to 50 to 50 to 200, right? Yeah. Um, which I haven't done. So I think that mindset uh, was, a, was a huge change. And while not easy, a phenomenal, a phenomenal event, really. I mean, just, just to, to be able to focus on very specific things, vision, mission, culture, values, you know, talk to customers, talk to employees, talk to partners, talk to analysts, and investors. And yeah. that's kind of what I do. 
And there was also another transaction that you guys did because you get you guys recently raised a hundred million. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. That was well. It was actually an um, October last year. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, probably that that puts us at about what a hundred and thirty something, a hundred almost a hundred and forty. Well, you, I, I didn't mention there was a couple of extensions that we chose to do with with the same investor uh, to acquire a couple of companies. So okay. we're almost one hundred and fifty in, in total. Got it. Now. Obviously, COVID has changed it, everything for you guys. I, I mean, probably it accelerated the vision by by a few years. So, I mean, how how was yeah. that ramp up, you know, and and that unexpected growth for the company? Well, so we were already kind of catching this wave of you know the importance of user experience design, the importance of customer experience, and you know collecting insights. That was a revolution that started, I want to say, you know, probably five years ago, and that's why we got the funding and all that. So we were riding that wave. Um, the the remote wave is what's happened with the pandemic, right? So as I mentioned earlier, we went from a lab to re- to doing remote testing, doing remote research. The fact that more companies were going digital helped us to to grow at a pretty good rate. But then once the pandemic hit, there was no other way. There were there were two things that happened. One is there's no other way but to do the research that you're doing through um, you know, online, through through some sort of online tool, right? And so it's all remote testing. That's number one. So we got a, quite a bit of people that were maybe hesitant a little bit, you know, in the past. They came in new and they, and they heard about us and they heard how convenient it is and how cost-effective it is, how fast it is, all those things. So great marketing campaign, I guess, or marketing awareness campaign. The second thing that happened is that our, our own customers other customers that were not customers, like IKEA, for instance, last year, signing a, over a million dollar deal with us because they're going digital. Mm. So the digital transformation uh, has accelerated. And that's what Nadia Satella uh, uh, from uh, Microsoft, right? He was yeah. saying, yeah, he was saying that, you know, the digital transformation and the digitalization of customers, of companies in the enterprise has accelerated three years in about three months yeah. because of, uh, you know, what happened in Q2 last year. So you put those two two, two things together and we've, We've increased our growth, you know, from about 35, 37% to 50%. Wow. Yeah. And uh, obviously, it's harder to grow once you get bigger. Uh, so, yeah, we're, we're experiencing pretty fast growth. As you're thinking about user experience and, you know, and events that really trigger that growth, what about Google now, you know, rolling out the core web vitals? I mean, is that is that something that you think that people are going to be, you know, more conscious about the user experience of, of the stuff that they're creating and, and that you think that's going to also impact you guys positively? Google has always been a company that bets on user experience. In fact, uh, there are some articles and literature out there uh, around how good user experience also helps SEO and SEM, right? Mm-hmm. But SEO, uh, SEM is more about ads, but, you know, search, er, search engine optimization. So Google has always been about or, or for better user experience. So, and by the way, they're one of our best customers as well. I think that w- what's happening beyond Google, honestly, is that customers have a completely different expectation, uh, users and customers, users before their customers. And sometimes users are not even customers, right? They may be users of, you know, let's say, uh, employee uh, or HR products, right? HR tools online, you know, whatever. Um, that's really what's driving this, Alejandro. In, in my opinion, this was coming, and I saw it coming a long time ago with our vision. But now, if the only way you're going to interact, think about it, if the only way you're going to interact with a brand is through 
some sort of glass, right? We call it glass or, you know, the desktop or the laptop or the phone or the iPad or, you know, uh, the car or the refrigerator, you know, and, and so many others. Then that experience, that that product experience, that design of that front end and how it works, think about it, it's become strategic. It's so important. It's no longer, you're no longer, a, you can't afford to be a retailer that doesn't provide great experience. Um, because what you're going to do is you're going to open a new tab. First of all, if you have a bad experience, there's all sorts of studies out there showing, demonstrating, you know, from analysts like Gardner and Forrester and McKinsey, et cetera, demonstrating that if you have a bad experience, you know, the chances of you coming back are very low. And if you do have a good experience, the chances of you coming back, even if the brand is not that famous or popular, you're actually going to drive growth. That's why I always say the great user experience design is one of the best growth strategies for, for modern uh, companies. It's you know, something I call product-led growth, right? You, you, you lead and you grow with the product experience rather than with sales. And I'm not suggesting that it's the only way, but it's a, it's a great. So that's really what's driving the, the growth for us and for, and for the market is that user experience is becoming kind of your, your, part of your strategy. Oh, yeah. A hundred percent. So let's talk about, you know, vision, because I mean, for, here is a, it's, it's a long time coming, Alfonso. I mean, come on. I mean, you, you, this, this started, you know, to originate back in 2001 and here, you know, we are 2021. So, you know, imagine you go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world five years later where the vision of user zoom is fully realized. What does that world look like? I always say every company is a digital experience company. That's the vision we have. And in order to be a great digital experience company, not just a digital company, not just a company that's in the software business, right? Not just a company that is investing in backend infrastructure or, you know, software. Being a digital experience company actually starts with culture. It starts with uh, leadership saying that this is a new way of interacting and dealing with customers. And the only way we can be successful digital experience companies is by being always very close to those guys, very close to the market, very doing a lot of research, a lot of uh, interviewing. And, you know, the same thing that you would do with your employees. You have to treat employees differently, right, in the, in the, in the era we live in today. So our vision is that every company is or will be a digital experience company running research and testing and constantly in touch with the end user as part of the product development lifecycle, as, as part of their modus operandi. That's our vision. I think that is happening already with a lot of enterprises where they use companies like us and products like ours every week. Every week. You know, they, they don't they don't they don't design or or develop something and launch it and hope it'll stick to the wall. No, they do a lot of research and a lot of testing throughout that process and then afterwards uh, as well. That's our vision. And I think that when when that actually happens at a, at a large enough size. I really believe this can be a multi-billion-dollar company one one day within the next few years, and who knows what will happen? It'll be interesting to go public or or maybe partner with a larger company. Who knows? But we're we're working definitely working today as if we're going to go public soon. Nice. So let's talk about you know if I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time, 20 years before the time that we're right now in. And you have the opportunity of having a chat with your younger self, with that younger Alfonso that is thinking about maybe branching out of, of the corporate world and, and, and starting something of your own. If you had, you know, that younger Alfonso, and let's suppose that that younger Alfonso was willing to listen, <laughs> what would be one piece of advice 
that you would give to your younger self before launching a company and why, given what you know now? You know, the one thing that I remember regretting is not doing enough research on the market. And I know that I've talked about research, you know, user experience research. In this case, I'm talking a little bit more about researching the market and, and understanding your buying persona. I think we went through a lot of issues and a lot of unnecessary situations because we didn't study the market, the, the potential of the market. We, 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 did, we did go through it with our consulting model. But I think I would I would encourage entrepreneurs, younger entrepreneurs, especially that have no 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 uh, experience scaling or 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 starting a company, to really study that market and fall in love with the problem. Mm. You know that that's a big one for me. And then the other thing I would do is I would be a little more careful with the going international. Uh, I mean, 20 years ago or even 10 years ago, I don't know that we had a choice, Alejandro. Today, I think you do. And so really understand whether you need to relocate to, to the other country or the market, because you can do a lot of things remotely. And I think I could have saved also some, some hard moments uh, if, I, if I'd known that. Of course. Well, Alfonso, very profound. And uh, obviously, thank you so, so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It was a, truly a pleasure and an honor to have you here with us. Likewise, thank you for inviting me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.